the queuing theory underlies the software agile and lean manufacturing and hardware agile. And so if you go back to the fundamentals, which is what Brett and his stack of heavy of big books was saying is go back to the fundamentals, understand why these are working, then you can put together methods that will do what you want using these powerful principles without making unfortunate errors because you didn't understand why it was working. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us again. We have a guest today, Kathy Iberly. Uh, her experience is in producing high-quality software and high-tech products using practical methods. And she has the experience behind it to back that statement up, which we'll be talking about today. She has an extensive career at Hewlett Packard working on products where hardware and software meet. And for many of you, uh, I know that's a, that's a real hot topic. You're different stages of maturity and trying to figure that out. Many folks uh, think they have it figured out. Many folks are just starting down the path and I'd say the majority are dealing with friction between the hardware teams and the software teams. And not only does Kathy understand the theory, but she also understands the pragmatic side of things. So Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How are you today? I am good. Good. Where are you talking to us from? I'm talking to you from Vancouver, Washington, which is just north of Portland. Okay. And how's the weather where you are? Are you guys into fall yet? Oh, Winter? yes, it's raining. <laughs> it's raining. <laughs> yeah. It will rain all week. Yeah, but you need it. We need the rain. It's been extremely dry and so very happy to see the rain replenish some of our water supply. Yeah, good, good. Well, that's such a beautiful area. Kathy, how did you first get, I mean, obviously you joined uh, Hewlett Packard, had a career there, but how did you get involved in in Agile. I'll just start there. I know that's an area where you have a lot of expertise coming from the software side. How did you get involved mm -hmm. in that? At HP in the mid 90s, I was working in medical products, one of the medical products divisions in McMinnville, Oregon. And we had been doing waterfall delivery and decided to try stage delivery. This was before anything was actually called Agile, but there were had been Actually, dating back into the mid-60s, you saw groups doing Agile in aerospace mainly, like at NASA. They were already doing iterative development, but nobody had a name for it. And because nobody had a name for it or a set of terms, it was difficult to describe, to discuss, to have any of the product, any of the methods develop further. So one of the people who was doing some of the earlier writing was Steve McConnell out of Microsoft, and he had written about a variety of methods you could use. And we tried one of them, which was called stage delivery. And stage delivery today probably wouldn't qualify as full-on agile, but it had the basics. Mm -hmm. And because I started with one of the very early methods, we got to see the development over time of the Agile community adding more and more practices and saying, well, this practice is critical and this practice is critical. But from my perspective, it was kind of like a controlled experiment. You adopt one mm -hmm. practice, then you adopt another one, you adopt another one. So you get to see which ones are having which kind of effect. 
in the later 90s, I uh, ended up in the, again, Hewlett Packard plant in Vancouver, Washington, where they're making inkjets and moved into the e-services during the dot-com boom. And we were using evolutionary delivery at that point. And the actual Agile manifesto didn't happen until about two years later. What did you think when the manifesto came out? I mean, you, maybe you've already been doing it or you were already there or what, were, what was your initial thoughts? <laughs> Well, I, I didn't actually see the manifesto first. I saw the XP books first, and it was like, oh, yeah. this is this is more organized than what we've been doing in evolutionary delivery. But on the other hand, he's clearly writing for a very targeted group that's uh, small in-house groups doing IT services. I ran some projects where we were writing tools to be used in-house, and XP worked great for that. But when you're trying to write something that's going to have uh, has more teams involved and starts getting hardware involved again, then you've got issues. Because everything I worked on at Medical Products and in Electronic Instruments was mixed hardware software projects. Mm -hmm. And then again in Vancouver, it was printers, cameras, mixed hardware software projects. The only time that I worked on pure software was for several years there in the e-services. And, and XP is extreme programming, right? Yeah, extreme That's, programming, yeah. correct. Yeah, yeah. These multiple these multiple engineering teams that you were working with, right? Hardware teams, software teams. That was all just part of innovation. So the agile fit inside the overall innovation program. How how does that fit? How does agile work with innovation? The broader program. Ah, good question. The difference between Agile and how software had been written before was that Agile split the work up into uh, basically creating it feature by feature instead of trying to do all the requirements for all the features and then all the design for all the features and then all the coding for all the features and then all the testing at which you find out that your coding and your design and your requirements all had yeah. problems and you have yeah. to go back and fix them all. Instead, we did it feature by feature. And we first started doing that with the stage delivery is take a group of features and take them all the way through um, to testing and go, yeah, okay, that works. Next set of features, requirements, design, coding, testing, integrate it. It's like that works and that's actually um, more, it's more reliable. You can tell what's going on. And then when you get into highly innovative times like those early e-services where everything is up for question, you also find out it's a lot more flexible. You can do a feature, release it, see what the customers think and then decide which feature should you do next or should you do some feature you weren't even thinking about before. Mm -hmm. And in particularly in the pure software where it's easier to change things, that happened quite a lot. Yeah. You do an early release and then come back and do additional features one by one. Sure. And you have to develop some pretty uh, extensive support methods to do that. Yeah, they've got the concept of the nowadays called minimal viable product or... Right, right. How does hardware come into that, Kathy? So I'm thinking of the hardware teams they are used to a very different approach, right? Sometimes they have regulatory exactly. to deal with. So how, how does that work with Agile? Yeah, um, it, it isn't so much the regulatory, it's the fact that it's not that easy to change hardware. Software, yeah. you can make a little piece and then you can make another little piece and you can plug them together. And you do have to learn some different ways to do design to do that. So there were some years where those design methods and the tools to support them were being developed, but it's pretty flexible. 
And on hardware, there are some things that just take a long time. You need to send boards out. You need to do a, a reliability test on how how much shaking in and heat. These used to be called shake and bake tests where mm -hmm. you put the thing in a vibrator and it would shake it for days and then see if it broke. And you can't hurry that up. That's how long it's going to take. So for a long time, hardware teams assumed they couldn't do Agile at all, that it just totally did not fit because they had a much higher cost of change and therefore needed to do things more slowly. Well, not more slowly, but you, you had to do it right the first time. So right. you're going to spend a lot of time doing design and then build it and it had better work. And in the meantime, the Agile software methods weren't doing a very good job, in my opinion, of describing why they worked. That was something that really frustrated me from the mid 90s for the next decade is I was doing uh, working with teams that were doing various types of Agile methods that kept evolving and getting more sophisticated and they were getting better at them and the whole uh, Scrum came out and Agile uh, Agile coaching and getting just a lot more tools, program management type tools to use as well as the technical tools. But the explanations of why it worked just did not to me make sense. I would, uh, some of them clearly I knew were wrong because they were saying things like you, you have to have a completely cross-functional team. And I think, well, I worked on cross-functional teams in McMinnville. I worked on non-cross-functional teams. Some of the things you're saying, I've seen it work without. So I know you don't actually have to. A cross-functional team is great when you can get it, but sometimes you need specialists. Yeah, and the self-organizing, what do you mean by self-organizing? Yeah. Can you explain that? So I found that to be pretty frustrating that I, I wasn't sure what was actually making it work until um, the mid-2000s, a manager of mine named Brett Dodd came in and told me he wanted me to read Don Reinertsen's books and gave me, I think, three big, thick books and said, you need to know this stuff. We're going to use it and it's going to, it's going to really change things. <laughs> And so I'm reading the principles of product development and realizing, oh, this is what's making Agile work. He's talking about splitting work into batches, which we've done with the user stories and the epics, and then moving the batches. And, uh, and that's, um, I was working in the test lab at the time. And so we started applying the queuing theory based lean methods to the testing and trying to integrate it with the software development. And that's, um, I was working in the test lab at the time. And so we started applying the queuing theory based lean methods to, to the testing and trying to integrate it with the software development. And suddenly I was able to explain to teams why it did not work for them to call their user stories done when they delivered them to system test. Because that was a really common mistake people were making in Agile in the mid 2000s is you had multiple teams working and each team would develop their work and turn it in to system test and go on and start doing more work. In the meantime, yeah. in system test, we're finding bugs and they have to fix them and they haven't budgeted any time for it. Right. <laughs> it's right. like, okay, because your job is not actually done. That's why you can't call it done at that point. You've got to um, allow for this extra time. Once you understood why it worked, then you could start looking at hardware development and ask, where's the batch here? 
What does your batch look like? Is it actually the same kind of batch as a software batch? Could we get things to integrate? And during the time I was at HP, we were doing some work on integrating hardware and software development uh, that way. And later I worked with in, in a consulting business working with more, which is where I started working with Catherine Radica in about 1999 or 2000 when we were doing all these e-service projects. And one of the first projects she and I did together was coming up with an agile method to release new software, not just write it, but release it yeah. into the public because that's what we were getting was multiple innovation teams uh, running in to what at the time was a service where we were supposed to be supplying the services to run all of these and the servers and the security and so on and so on. And they'd be coming in, look at my new thing. And it's like, <laughs> okay, great. Where, where's your installer? Where's your, where's your test suite or your regression test suite? Where's and right. Yeah. The methods of the time just hadn't called for anything. They didn't, it was all brand new. Nobody had a method. So we were sitting down and adapting agile methods that weren't really designed to do uh, this level of, um, they, they were designed for internal software projects. They weren't designed for things that were going to be available to the public in their very wide variety of use models and equipment and so forth. So we came up with a basically a life cycle that would allow, that would support new internet applications. You know, and the other thing that I think software teams don't think about is they don't have manufacturing. Right, it's easy. Right. To, it's it's just code. It's just push it done. There's no manufacturing cycle. There's no need to prepare for it. There's no need to consider how are you going to manufacture it. You know, what what robotics do you need? Well, how do you test it during manufacturing? Right, none of exactly. that. And of course, that's what the physical product teams live with. They've they've honed that methodology really well. So that's um, the conclusion I at least have come from, and the conclusion that you'll see in the book that Catherine and I are going to publish, Agile Gets Physical, is that the hardware or mixed hardware software projects are not just one single type of batch running through one single process. There's multiple things going on simultaneously because yes, you have to design the product, you have to figure out how to build the product, but at the same time, you have to build a supply chain, you have to build a manufacturing process, you have to acquire manufacturing ability, and that's a whole set of constraints that I was aware of because I had worked on products where that was going on and I could see it going on at the same time as I'm writing drivers, uh, especially in McMinnville where it was a very small division. And one of the advantages of that is you are eating lunch with people who are in completely different fields. So you have friends in manufacturing. You can literally walk onto the manufacturing line and see where your product is going to go. And if they can't install the software onto the hardware, believe me, they come over to your desk and tell <laughs> you so. And you have to go figure out uh, what did I what did I not explain here about how to do this because yeah. this needs to be repeatable. Yeah, you don't want to be the person to hold up the manufacturing line. That's for sure. No. You don't want to be that person. Yeah. Yeah, and after you have that happen once, uh, you have a 
a very good appreciation for manufacturability. And it's easy to see that, okay, my manufacturability as a software engineer is really tiny, but my partner sitting here across the wall in the, the next uh, pot of desks, uh, building things, theirs is a lot bigger. There's a lot to this. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people worried about dealing with friction between the hardware and software teams. Mm -hmm. You're starting to introduce this concept of awareness. If you understand the other side, yeah, that, that, that's a great way to break down friction, isn't it? It is. Um, and once you understand, you can start building methods that bring things together. And in our book, we're presenting two different kinds of methods. The rapid learning cycles, which is applying agile methods to the research at the beginning of the project, where it's hardware, software, electrical, everybody in together and trying to, in marketing and so forth, trying to figure out what product do we want to build? What should it be like? What's our market? And breaking that learning down into little batches to be able to manage them quickly and do just enough learning to be able to make the important decisions that if you make a mistake, you're going to, it's going to be very costly because you have to go backwards. You have a long, slow feedback loop. Be able to make those decisions confidently with enough information that they will be right and your chances of having to revisit them are quite low. Mm -hmm. So she spent over a decade now making that method work. And I worked with her on several aspects of it over, over that time. Yeah. And then another chapter in the book is on integration train methods to take when you're bringing the hardware and the software together. And there often is a lot of friction because the software teams are doing these agile methods and running along on this very fast pace. And today a device is likely to have two different software groups, one producing the embedded software or firmware and one producing the internet applications. Right. And the internet application one is especially likely to be using Agile and, and often in a very advanced manner and not familiar with how the hardware teams work. Whereas the firmware teams, they're kind of sitting in the middle and they always have been. So they're more familiar with what hardware teams are doing. But you see groups that want to talk to each other, but just don't have any language. Mm -hmm. So the integration train is a method to help software teams and the hardware teams integrate their work and bring it together using some planning methods that are basically agile planning methods. Right. The queuing theory underlies the software agile and lean manufacturing and hardware agile and so if you go back to the fundamentals, which is what Brett and his stack of heavy, of big books was saying is go back to the fundamentals, understand why these are working. Then you can put together methods that will do what you want using these powerful principles without making unfortunate errors because you didn't understand why it was working. Yeah. You mentioned supply chain there a little bit. You know, right now, supply chain is driving everybody nuts. You know, we yeah. thought we were going to have these capabilities, and now all of a sudden, they're not coming. We can't get them, right? It yeah. started with microprocessors, but I think everybody's realized it's much deeper than that. It's raw materials. It's, it's, it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing that uh, as well? 
in the companies you're working with? Are they have they started to react to that yet, or is it still on the horizon for them? I wouldn't say that personally. I would have much visibility into it at this point. Yeah, wouldn't be surprised because what seems to be going on basically is that we're trying to shove from the consumer point of it. We're trying to shove a thirty. 30 or 40% increase in the amount of stuff shipped through the same system that we've been using for decades. And it's, you know, it doesn't yeah. have enough extra capacity to take that big a jump. That's right. That's right. So, so now when, product teams are finding that something they were maybe planning to come to market with, they're not going to be able to. And they're trying to think yeah, of- because they can't okay. get the parts because the parts went into something else because that was being built. So you're still dealing with slowdowns because of- factories being shut down for COVID outbreaks, plus this massive demand for stuff, which at yeah. least in the U.S. seems to be driven by, where uh, if you aren't going to go out and go to on uh, trips and, and go to plays and out to dinner and stuff, then people are buying stuff. Yeah. And so yeah. there's a lot of stuff getting shipped. Absolutely. Yeah. And or not getting shipped, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's pretty... If you look at the consumer, the amount of consumer goods that are getting shipped, there's a lot of consumer goods getting shipped. That's why yeah. there's all those container ships sitting off LA. They're full of stuff. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. not always the stuff that the manufacturers here need and want. Yeah. It, it is a big challenge and having it so globalized is making it, the shock of having all of this demand is making it harder because you've got a very, very complicated supply chain to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the agile concepts that software organizations have been able to do is, is this concept of a dedicated team, right? That's what they do. They just, that's it. And on the hardware side, are companies figuring out how to get to that same level of dedicated teams or are they still struggling with people getting pulled across teams or onto other initiatives in the company as it, as it used to be? Is that changing? Again, I don't think I have enough visibility across a lot of different groups to be able to mm -hmm. say. I think software people like to say they have dedicated teams everywhere, but if you go talk to people in software, you find that may not be as universal okay. as one yeah. would think. It is pretty obvious when you look at the theory behind this that if you are moving people around constantly, then it's more difficult to get anything done. It takes longer. And the problem mainly is the amount of task switching that the individuals are doing. You can actually yeah. create the same negative effect within a dedicated team. If you give everybody six jobs at once yeah. and expect them to do all six jobs every day, their performance really degrades because they're spending so much of their time switching their brain from one thing to another. Knowledge work takes a long time to switch. Yeah, you, you can switch easy physical things in 10 seconds, but you can't switch uh, when you're deep in coding something, switching to coding something else. That's going to be 10, 20 minutes. And as a coder, and you've experienced this as well, I'm sure, sometimes you can't even stop because you know if you stop now, you won't be able to pick it up. So you're, yeah. stuck, you're stuck going on into who knows what, what crazy hours of the night. And then you can say, okay, finally, yeah. I can stop now. Yeah, you had it all in your head and it was really yeah. hard to get in your head. Yep, yep, exactly, yep. exactly. It's all loaded up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's plenty of uh, psychology research now to demonstrate this, that there's just no good reason to make one person do 
many different jobs in the same day. Yeah. Two yeah. can be good because if they run into a roadblock on one of them, they can switch to their, their other project. But more than that tends to just waste time. Yeah. And that I yeah. think was one of the the big things we learned in Agile when you stop doing that, you get all this time back and then you can use it to actually write code or make other things. Yeah, yeah. So that would be a, a great a great suggestion. You know, a lot of people are still learning Agile. And it's gonna sound harsh, but I know some of them are dealing with, well, we've been told we have to do it, so we're doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. And as you go up in the executives, they say, well, are you doing agile? Yes. Okay. Check mark. And, yeah. and these kind of things you're talking about are those fundamental things that make agile succeed or not. And you mentioned a number of things about physical products, but there's a one thing or the most important thing that a physical products team needs in order to get the most benefit from, from agile. Probably the most important thing for a physical product team is not to assume that they're going to pick up an agile software method and implement it just like it looks in an agile book. Like, Boy, do not that's... think you're going to go out and buy a scrum book and do scrum. It ain't going to work for you because you've got a much higher cost of change. You've got a lot more dependencies. The fundamental theory actually does work and will help you a lot. But if you are trying to do precisely what your software partners are doing, you get very frustrated. And then people yell at you because you're not you're not doing it right. So that is can... an outstanding answer to that question. I I think you just nailed it. I think you really nailed it. I hope everybody replays the last thirty seconds and listens to it again because that was that was fantastic, Kathy. You know, you mentioned working on a book with Catherine. When are you guys going to come out with that? That should come out early, very early in twenty twenty two. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I'm looking forward to it. I think I've seen bits and pieces of it, so I know where it's it's headed, but I'm really excited about that book. And uh, I hope you guys will come back with us and talk to us again when we get close to that book. Uh, you get close to that book. Other than that, you know, are there other exciting things you're working on or is that like, that's the one right now? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm developing training classes on related matters, uh, most of which are coming out through the Rapid Learning Cycles Institute. Mm -hmm. So uh, learning to do training online has certainly been interesting. Yeah. But there's yeah. some things I really like about it. We're doing courses where they're flipped classroom style. And that's where the students sign up for the class. They get a set of videos that are split up into, you know, 10, 15 minute chunks. And they watch the video, uh, several of these for the week. And then we have an online session so mm. that we're spending the entire online session with the students looking. They had a, a homework assignment. So going through their homework assignments and discussing everything that all the questions that they have. And the thing I like about it is that the students get that full hour is for them. They're not listening to me talk. They already did that. They can ask all the questions they want. We can look at examples. Uh, we can come up with new examples. And, yeah. and they get to hear from other people in the class. So seeing each other's examples helps a lot to see <laughs> three, four, five different ways to do the same thing. Yeah. How exciting. I mean, that's a whole new way of learning, right? And it was, maybe it was forced on you, but uh, you found, that sounds like you found a, an approach that's really working. Um, yeah, well, we didn't invent this, certainly. I worked with a test manager that was teaching at uh, Florida, who I think Institute of Technology or something, back in the 
early 2000s, he was doing flipped classroom already. And mm, he wrote quite really? a bit for, yeah, he wrote quite a bit for other test lab managers. I was part of, this was Kim, Dr. Kim Kaner, and he was experimenting with better ways to teach software engineering. And I was wow. doing, at the time, I was doing a lot of training, developing training within Hewlett Packard. So I was real interested in following what are ways we can train people that will be effective. That's and, pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. And the flipped classroom was something at that time we didn't have the, it, you needed some pretty advanced abilities to do that then, but now it's a lot easier. Yeah. And people are getting a lot better at being able to do online stuff. Yeah, everybody Other... was forced into it. So now as an attendee in that kind of class, okay, I I could use... Yeah, well, the people, all of the technical professionals are fine yeah. with it. I'm also doing training classes as a volunteer for the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. And that is a ministry helping those in need that is, is largely retired people in the U.S. Mm, Other countries very have, different. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so I w had been doing in-person training classes for 10 years and going places and teaching, going places and teaching. And then suddenly I can't do that anymore. None of us can do it. And yet the groups still want the classes. So we started doing them online and doing meetings online. And oh man, the first... <laughs> The first few months were pretty painful. I and bet they were. People on how to turn the sound on on their computer and stuff. And then suddenly it got a lot better. And what I started hearing was, well, my grandchildren taught me how. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's like, thank you to the grandchildren of America as they helped a lot of people get competent on Zoom. And so we have tons of people now that are having meetings and we're running projects across the country and we're able to do things we could never do before because we learned, everybody learned how to use the tools and the tools are much more available than anybody thought. Yeah. Yeah. And give it to your kids and your grandkids who are built yes. in IT support for, for, yes. for all of us. It's really pretty yes. neat. I have to thank a lot of middle schoolers across the country. <laughs> <There you> go. <laughs> Well, Kathy, I really enjoyed the uh, conversation with you. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. If people want to connect you know, with you or kind of follow you, is there ways that they can kind of keep track of what you're doing? Um, certainly LinkedIn is a good way. Yeah. And yeah. since I have a, an unusual name, that's easy to find. Yeah. And we will put link in the show notes to that so people can look in the show notes and, and, and find you on LinkedIn. And I wish you, you know, a speedy conclusion, a good, successful conclusion on the book. We'd love to have you back. Uh, we'll plan to have you back when you get close to launching that and uh, talk right. about it. Good. Okay. All right, Kathy, you have a great week. We'll be in touch. And to all the listeners out there, thanks for joining. Hope you enjoyed this session and I hope you have a good week ahead of you. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.